First Peter, uh, the end of First Peter, twenty-two to twenty-five, starts with having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may sit. You may be seated. We'll dismiss our school-age kids, right, to the back. They're headed back there exuberantly. Let me invite you, if you brought a Bible, to open it to 1 Peter. I have uh, so thoroughly enjoyed this specific text in 1 Peter, and it has been such a balm for a weary heart, if I could say that. And I believe that if, if we will listen today, if we will not just listen with our ears but with our hearts, the truth that Peter talks about, inspired through the Holy Spirit, for his audience and for us, if we will listen to this, I believe 1,000% it will radically change your life. The things he talks about are just so applicable. I know we got some seniors in the room. Seniors, y'all wave at me. We got a couple over there, a couple back there, one over there. <laughs> Mr. Thomas waving his hand. He's, he's in... <laughs> He is. I, I said seniors, and I love it. Seniors, you're about to go on this uh, unique journey. I know we're celebrating, I think, seniors next week. But if you'll take this advice from Peter throughout your college days, it'll radically change your life. Imagine being at home one evening and getting a text or an email seeing a commercial or something on TV and radically and urgently you have to go and grab everything that you can and shove it in a bag and leave. Kind of like one of those scenes from a movie that we don't see too often. And this is the case of many of these people that Peter's writing to, that they got a message. They lived at peace in Rome for a while. And then when Nero um, took charge, became emperor, things got very dangerous for Christians. In any Roman uh, city, and nearly every letter written in the New Testament is written to people who live in Roman-occupied territory. And it had gotten so bad that Nero was capturing Christians and he was impaling them on a pole and covering them with tar and lighting them on fire to illuminate his garden parties. And so you can imagine this kind of scenario happened a lot where the parents came home and said, the danger's getting too close, we've got to go. You can imagine being a kid in that kind of environment of taking what little you had and leaving. And this is the audience that Peter is writing to. They are, he says, we talked about last week, they are chosen people, but they're exiles. And they're moving into a place, into a city, that, into cities, several of them, as this letter would have been passed from city to city, where, where they are not accepted. They are on the outside looking in. They're strangers and foreigners. They, they weren't born there. They don't know the dialect. They don't know all the cultural norms. They've been forced from their homeland. So they don't know that. Now, they're also foreigners and strangers, and they're ostracized because not only that, but they also don't adopt the religion of the day. They actually are following the way. They're following Jesus. And that was so controversial and so dangerous. Imagine being a Jew in the 1930s and 40s. Like, you didn't even want to know a Jew. That's the, that's the case here. You didn't even really want to know a Christian. Because just by knowing them, you could put yourself in danger. And this is the audience that Peter's writing to. This is why I think sometimes because we don't see this full context, that we don't, we don't get it all the way of how heavy their hearts are, how difficult their lives are. 
And in a similar way, as we move into a post-Christian culture, we're there, we're seeing the effects of it, a reminder of it every day. An evil that used to lurk in the shadows and in the darkness is now in broad daylight. It is just, that's just the way it is. And that's going to be the definition of the world that we live in and of the kids and teenagers in this room that you're, that, that you're going to continue to mature in. This, this is where we're at. And so I love this, that Peter is trying to tell them how to live a resilient life. This is how you live a resilient life. And he's got really just one point. I want to read it to you starting in verse 13. Remember he ends in verse 12 with the angels looking over heaven, inquiring about this salvation. Verse 13, it says, Therefore, pointing back to this mystery of salvation, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in him or in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seeds, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Just as Tim read a minute ago, all flesh like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter says, Here how, here's how you have a resilient life. Here's how you handle adversity with joy. Here's how you walk through difficulty with peace. He says it's a joy so large and so full in this present time, not, not when heaven's here. It's going to be even, can you imagine the joy there? It, it can be had even now. It can be, it's, it's a joy so real that he says in the, in, in, in the last little section that it's inexpressible. You know, you know, you see a, a sunset and it just, it just caps, I mean, the beauty. Dave was in Colorado last week and he took a picture. He showed it with me this week. I was FOMO after the fact. Like, it was the most incredible sunset. You look at something like that, it's hard to explain. Like, even as I explained it to you, you're like, eh. But if you were there. One of those kind of things. This is what Peter says. It's a joy that's so, so full and so great. And it's, I just, I don't have any words for it. It's just, it's just, it's just that great. So how can we have a joy that's that great in the midst of these people leaving their home, being ostracized, being with the, the threat of death, having lost some of their family members? How can you live a joy and peace at a time like that? And here's what, here's what Peter says. And this is the one point. He says you have to set your hope. Or maybe your translation might say, fix your hope. Set your hope fully. When I was a little kid, my dad taught me how to do construction projects. And we didn't have the money to hire other people or maybe... Dad just didn't want to hire other people. I don't know, but we always did it. If it broke, we just did it ourselves. That's the kind of family we were. And so every Saturday, there was some kind of project to be had. 
And as a young kid, I wasn't old enough, right, to use the tools. And so I was the helper guy, right? You understand? Like, okay, you hold the two by four in place and keep your eye on the level and let me know when it's level. Because sometimes you're in an awkward place when you're holding the board up and you're looking at the level. You don't have time to say, okay, Dad, I think it's ready. Short in the construction talk, at least in my house, was nail it. That was it. When you had it right, you just yelled out, nail it. This is what Peter is saying about our lives. To set your hope fully. Set it. Fix it. Fix your gaze on Jesus. This life is going to be hard and it's going to be difficult. Peter calls it the fiery trials of life. People are going to let you down. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to get sick. People you love are going to get sick. People you love are going to pass away. It's going to be hard, he says, but that's okay. There's no reason not to have joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's not, that's not reason not to have peace that surpasses understanding. Here's the secret. His one point is you've got to set your gaze fully on Jesus, to fix your hope on him. So you know what causes frustration? We've talked about this before, is the, is the gap between expectation and reality. I think I have a little slide for this. It's, you're probably not going to be able to, to see it from that far back, but... If our expectations are here, if our expectations for date night are two Johns, and reality is we have a Wendy's budget, okay? If I'm expecting two Johns and Ashley says we got to spend Wendy's money, the gap in between expectation and reality is frustration. And a lot of us have bought into the lie, the expectation of comfort now, of a life of ease of if I follow Christ, it's going to be all rainbows and skittles. And this is what we think it's going to be. And when it's not that, and we get betrayed, and we get let down, and we don't make the team, and we don't make the grade, and we don't get the job, and people don't act like they're supposed to act. Reality is here, and if we're not careful, we'll, that, that frustration gap, we, we, we'll, we'll be frustrated with God. But, but God never promised us heaven here. He never promised us everything would be great here. As a matter of fact, when he had his disciples around him on the last day, what did he say? In this world, you're going to face many troubles. But just take heart because I've overcome the world. Isn't, isn't that the song? I feel like if, if, if Peter had a Martin guitar and knew how to triple strum, he, he could have he written that song that we sang just a minute ago. You've already won. There's this expectation and reality gap that leads to frustration. And this is why Peter is urging us to set our hope on Jesus. Set it fully on Jesus. It says here in the text, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And at first reading, when you read that, you think heaven, right? Set your hope fully on the, that'll be brought to you, on the grace that'll be brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It makes you think of heaven, and certainly heaven is true. That's when we'll see it in its fullness. But this word here is actually written in the present. See, Peter doesn't have time. That's such a cliche advice, really. When someone's walking through it, when someone's really walking through difficulty or pain, don't go tell them that God's going to use it for their good. That's, that's cliche advice at that point. Is that true? Yes, it's true. But it's, it's not the right words at the right time. And this is Peter, too. He's not just saying to them, hey, buckle up. The next two, three, four decades of your life is going to be hell on earth. But there's going to be heaven. Nobody's writing that on a coffee cup. Because that's cliche advice. And here he's not giving cliche advice. He doesn't say set your, set, your, set your gaze, set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be revealed to you when Jesus returns to earth. No, it says the revelation. And the Greek word here is actually written in the present that will be brought to you not only in heaven in its fullness, but today as you walk with Jesus right now in the present. It's written in the present. See, here's the thing. Every believer in this room is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's called a lot of things. He's the comforter. But one of the things that Jesus made a distinct point to tell 
his followers is that the Holy Spirit would lead them to truth. He would lead them to truth. And who is the truth? Jesus says of his own voice, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this is the role of the Holy Spirit. He is always inside of you. He's always pointing the spotlight at Jesus. Just look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. And that is revealed to you every time you walk with Jesus. Some of you have a discipline of getting up every morning and opening your Bible. You're setting your hope fully on the grace of God that's going to be revealed to you through Jesus Christ, through the words of Scripture, right now, through a song of worship as it points to Jesus again and again, through a conversation with another believer as they encourage you and they remind you of Jesus and they point you to Jesus. This is why Peter is giving this. Now, now th you can write this on a coffee cup. This would really encourage my heart because when I'm weary, he comes in and encourages me. When I'm, when, when I'm discouraged, he encourages. When I'm defeated, he fills me up. This is the role. This is what Jesus does. Remember we talked last week that he goes before you fighting these battles that he's already won that we just talked about. That he, that he, that he walks beside us. And then he comes from behind us. As we look ahead, we see that God's already won. And as we look at behind, we see the goodness of God as he created everything. And he's kept his promise and he's never, he's never not honored his promise to us. And then we look beside us and he's actually walking next to us. Isn't God so good to us? This is what Peter is trying to communicate to us, that we should have this resilient life. And here's the secret, by fixing our hope. This is similar to the, the Lord telling Paul, Paul, I'm not going to take the thorn in the flesh away. I'm just going to remind you that my grace is sufficient every day in every way. This reminded me of an illustration that I read in the book Good to Great of something called the Stockdale Paradox. You've ever heard of this? Vice Admiral James Stockdale was a leader in the Vietnam War, and he was a POW for seven years, seven and a half years actually, and some of those times were just incredibly difficult. He was in solitary confinement for a couple years. He was actually in leg irons for two solid years. He'd been brutally beaten more than 15 times. And he gets out, he comes, he comes home, and he writes this memoir, and it's, it's just the craziest thing you've ever read. As you read it, you just think about Man, how did he get through? So many of these soldiers that were captured didn't make it. They died while they were in the camp. But not him. And here's what he said. The, the reason that most of them died was because they died of what he called naive optimism. He says in his words, naive optimism is what got men killed. Because you know what they would say? You know what? We're going we're gonna to be out of here by, by Easter. And then Easter would come and they, would, they, weren't, they weren't gone. They'd go, well, we're going to be out towards the end of it. By July 4th, we're going to be home. I can see the fireworks now. We're going to be home July 4th. And they, July 4th would come and go and they weren't home. Oh, can you taste the turkey? We'll certainly be home by Thanksgiving. And then Thanksgiving came again and again and again and again. And they, they, they weren't home. And he said literally they just gave up hope. They died of a broken heart. But not Stockdale. This is what he said. These are his words. I don't think I have, I got two quotes from him. This is not on the screen. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. When asked, how in the world did you survive? This is what he said. This is the quote on the screen, I think. I never lost faith in, faith in the end of the story. I never doubted. Not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into a defining event of my life, which in retrospect I would not trade. I feel like Peter could have wrote that very same sentence. This is what Peter is saying. This is not naive optimism. This is not that the rest of the world, the rest of my life is going to be rainbows and skittles. This is not that. It's the song we sing. I win in the end. 
and all the difficulties that happened to me between now and then when I went in the end, God is such a good father that he's taking those things with limits and he's using them to make me stronger where I'm at so that these things that the enemy meant to kill me are just going to be defining points in my life. And I'm going to look back at the hard things and they're going to be really hard. But I'm going to say, man, what God taught me through that season of difficulty, of betrayal, of no answers, of confusion, what God taught me to fix our hope. I love, too, that Peter just doesn't just leave it there. Peter's going to actually walk us through the three ways that we fix our hope on the glory of Christ that's going to be revealed to us. The three ways. These are the three things. He's got one point where you've got to fix your hope. And if you say, well, how in the world, Peter, would I do that? And he's going to tell us exactly how we do this. Look at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. He says, one, we've got to prepare our minds. Anybody, anybody using a King James Version in here? No hate. It just means you're really intelligent. I, don't, I can't read that stuff. The, the actual translation here in the Greek is to gird the loins of your mind. Now, we don't say that anymore because we don't gird our loins. Um, not many people came wearing flowing robes today. But in this day, this is what they did, that they would, uh, they would wear robes everywhere. It helps with ventilation, as you can think, in a society that wasn't very clean. But what you would want to do, and this is written all through the New Testament, all through the Old Testament. We, we read it a couple of weeks ago in, that, in, the, in James. We were looking at James where he said he gird up his loins and outran the horses of Ahab. That was pretty cool. This is what it says, gird the loins of your mind. What, what that means to, to gird your loins was it's, 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 it's time for action. It's time to get busy. It's time to work. My dad would say it this way, go, go, son, go put your clothes on. Go put your shoes on. It's time to work. This is what Peter's saying, that we're going to gird the loins of our minds. Translated in most things as prepare your minds for action. If you needed to exert yourself, you would take the long flowy robe and you would pull it up and you would tuck it all into your belt so that, so that, so that nothing loose hanging would trip or snag on something. This is, this is what you did. To gird the loins up of our minds up, what, what that means is that, that we would think clearly about things. We would begin to have a clarity or a, a mental strength that we would prepare our minds for action. That we wouldn't think that this is just the roller coaster. That we wouldn't think that this the life is just the, the theme park. That there's actually work to do and there's an enemy who's against us. And as a matter of fact, those who follow Jesus and really follow Jesus on the front lines really means they really believe what the Bible says and they're really out there trying to make disciples. That the enemy has got sharpshooters against you. He's coming against you. So let's, let's not play and act like we're at Disney World all the time. Let's prepare our minds for action. Let's, let's have a mental clarity about ourselves. And he would enforce that in the second point by saying being sober-minded. If you have too much alcohol, if you take too many drugs or even prescription medication, you're not sober. You can't think clearly. Your mind and brain's a little fuzzy. You might say things that you wouldn't say otherwise. And this is not a, this is not a command necessarily here against drinking too much alcohol. That's in other places in Scripture. But what he is saying is that we would be sober-minded, that we would have a mental strength about us. We would have... We would know in our mind what we're really after. We would know where we are and who we are and what's in front of us. We would have a mental clarity and a mental strength. We prepared our minds for action and we're sober-minded. Last night I'm sitting on the couch. We're watching TV as a family, me and Hudson and, and, and Ashley for a little bit. And a commercial came on for Burger King's Chicken Nuggets. Which is, you know, just sounds terrible today. That is, it does sound terrible today. But last night, all it did was made me crave chicken nuggets. Now listen, I have not made my own chicken nuggets for me since college. And then it probably wasn't my first choice. It was just, you know, it's all, all, all we had in the freezer. So last night at like 9 o'clock, I get up, have to go to the very bottom of the freezer, 
get some chicken nuggets and make them for myself. How embarrassing really is that, I think, as I think about it today? Commercials in, in our world do this thing where they, they intoxicate us for some product or thing. This is, they, they, they're marketing geniuses. They intoxicate us. If you just had this device, if you just had this meal, if you just had this kind of life, if you just went to this college, if you just had this career, if you just drink this drink. No, no, no one behind the commercials are just having the worst day of their life. They're having the best day of their life. They're all at the beach or some well-lit party with good music, right? And they're putting these things in front of you. The world just has such a brilliant way at intoxicating us with everything but Jesus. Even as Emily prayed. And you and I, we know this because we've, we've chased after those things. And we've chased after them and we've got them. And then we're like, oh, it's like Burger King chicken nuggets. A little salty in the moment, but that's, I mean, you know, you regretted it at three in the morning. This is not something I should have had. Prepare your minds and be sober-minded. I was trying to think of a way. What he's saying is think about Jesus and, and all that he's going to reveal and be faithful in the process when things aren't working out the way you really want them to work out. Maybe, maybe you know somebody that runs a marathon. I'm not that guy. But marathon runners are just so disciplined. They got to eat the right things and they got to train on the right days. I've got a friend running several marathons and he's trying to, 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 to run the, you know, the big seven or whatever it is, go to Tokyo and go to Berlin. When I'm over in Dallas, I text him. He's like, hey, man, can I text him? Hey, can we, can we grab lunch? I'm free. He's like, no, I can't. I got to use my lunch hour to train. Or no, I got to work through my lunch hour because I got up at four this morning to run 15 miles or something. Because see, for him, there's this thing in the distance that he's training himself for. He's got his mind focused on. He's sober-minded about wanting to accomplish this goal. And everything else in the middle is just like, I got to say no to those things so I can say yes to this thing. And we understand that. I thought maybe the best illustration, and again, one that I can't personally attest to, is just that of pregnancy. I mean, the things a woman's body goes through during pregnancy. And they're carrying around this weight and they're puking in the mornings and they're having all the back pains. I mean, all, all the things. Can you even imagine? Most of you ladies are like, yeah, I can imagine. I did it. I did it more than once. But they endure all the hardship for that moment the baby's there. And a new life is there. And the doctor puts the baby on the mom's chest. And she's thinking, it was so worth it. Certainly the nine months of difficulty are worth this. This is what Peter's saying. Hey, be sober-minded. Prepare your minds for action. This is not going to be easy. We've got to prepare our minds. We've got to discipline ourselves now to accomplish a far greater goal than, than comfort. So prepare our minds. And, man, we could even go so much further than this. We've got to posture our hearts. That's his second way we do it. If you want to live a resilient life, Peter says you've got to fix your hope. In order to fix your hope, these are the three things I'm going to tell you to do. You've got to prepare your minds. You've got to posture your heart. Let's keep reading. In verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. He uses, this is why I use this word, posture your heart. He uses this, uh, this illustration of obedient children. And this is not obedience in the fact that like you told your kid to clean the room and begrudgingly they went up there murmuring things bad about you, but they actually did it. No, this is a genuine willingness. This is a, this is a, a picture of submission and trust. Of a father telling his son or a mother telling his son something to do and they don't really understand it. But even though I don't understand it, I trust you, dad. I trust you, mom, so I'm going to do it. 
submission and trust. This is what Peter says. This is the only way you're going you're gonna to get the, this is the only way you're really going to be able to fix your hope is you've got to take the posture of your heart. It's got to be like obedient children. And we don't understand everything that's happening. And we don't understand why God would allow something to happen at the Allen Premium Outlets yesterday. We don't understand that. We don't understand cancer and difficulty and even personal things that you've walked through. And you prayed and you prayed that God would come in and intervene. And he has not done it yet. And so we've got to take the posture of an obedient child to say, Dad, I don't understand this. I don't understand why I can't play in the road. I don't understand why I can't eat ice cream for breakfast. I don't understand why I have to brush my teeth. That doesn't make sense to me. But I, even though I don't understand, I'm going to trust you because you've got a vantage point that I don't have. So I'm going to trust you as, as obedient children. We're, we're posturing our heart. It's this beautiful picture of faith is really what it is. And he really says it. He's really telling us that we've we got to be weird. That Christians are just weird. As obedient children, we're not conforming to the passions of our former ignorance. Everyone around us is doing that, but not us. We're not going to be like he who changed us. He says it negatively and positively. Negatively, don't be conformed to the passions of your ignorance. So you used to do some pretty stupid things. We're not going to do those things anymore. Those are stupid things. Now we're, now we're going to do, do Christ things. You ever seen that Instagram account of kids that just throw a fit over stupid things? Like, like when, the, when, the, when the parents tell the little kid that the babysitter's getting married, babysitter's getting married, and they lose it and they cry for three days? In, in essence, there's a, there's a, a tinge of this here, I think, in the, our posturing our heart. Like, we're not going to do childish things anymore. Yeah, you used to throw a fit and literally throw yourself on the ground and kick and stomp and scream in the middle of a store because you couldn't get the candy. But I hope most of you in this room don't do that anymore. If I see you doing that in a store, I'm just going to walk around you. I'm not, I don't know you, okay? The history that these people are living in in Asia, that how they worshiped mostly, their worship was with temple prostitutes. And they would show up to the place of worship and they would worship this false god. And the actual priests and priestesses were prostitutes. And you can imagine what this looks like. And Peter's like, we're not doing that stuff anymore, man. No, that is childish and ignorant. He even, he, what, what, what do you call it? Passions, conform to the passions of your ignorance. No, no, we're going to do things differently. And he says it positively by saying, be holy even as I am holy. Be, be holy as he is holy, sorry. Holiness, and when you think about it, you immediately, maybe it's a negative connotation. This holiness, so you think of holier than thou, and that's not what he's saying. He's saying holiness as wholeness. That's actually where we get the English word. Holiness comes from this idea of, 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 of wholeness. Holiness is, is holy, perfect goodness, and holy, perfect justice, and holy, perfect beauty, and holy, perfect love. Who wants to live in a government that's just partially just? No, we long for heaven, which is going to be perfectly and wholly just. Who wants a marriage relationship where your spouse is just partially faithful? No, no, we, we long for holy faithful. To be holy as he is holy, Peter reminds them. The word for holy in Hebrew really it literally means to cut away, that you are cut away from the world, that you are separate, that you're totally different, that you're going to seem a bit weird to everyone else because you, now you are literally cut from a different cloth. And this is how we should all be. And I feel like in America specifically, we've gotten too comfortable looking exactly like our neighbors who don't know Jesus. When is the last time you were literally ostracized for your faith because you took a stand in the way and in the words of Jesus that the world would not take? This kind of thing should be happening to us all the time in a post-Christian culture, that there are things that we just can't watch. There are places that we just can't go. There are activities that we just can't participate in. Be holy as even he is holy is, is, is the call. 
Augustine's words, I love Augustine's words on this. Christians are more, Christians should be more out of sync with the world in their relationship with three things, he says. Money, power, and sex. Money. Financially, as a Christian, most Christians should be about three steps behind other people who make the same amount of money of you as you. Three steps behind. The average credit card debt in our area is between ten and $15,000. Proverbs tells us, as, as best you can, try to live without debt. Live below your means, not above your means. And then secondly, Christians are called to tithe their income. 10% of the income that's coming in, they're actually giving back into God-honoring ministries. They're bringing it to the church. Second step behind. Third step behind. We're going to save money. And we're going to put it in an account. This is what Proverbs says. Consider the ant, he would say, who stores up in summertime, preparing for the winter. So the average Christian, you should look up. About three steps, you drive different cars. You live in different houses. You go on different kinds of vacations than someone who doesn't take those three steps. Does that make sense? Financially and then sexually. Sexually, God's ideal for marriage is one man and one woman in marriage forever. This may be the most obvious way that we see in our culture today that we treat Sex like it's whatever we want it to be. You, you got you to gotta, you gotta test it before you buy it. That's a lie from the pit of hell. God says, no, 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 no. I created you and I created sex and I gave it very strict parameters. It's a glorious thing. Used within this context. And the enemy is just trying to destroy us in this area. So much so that the church doesn't look all that different than the world does in, in many cases. And then in power. The world is a dog-eat-dog kind of world. Like we want to get as much power as we can and exert it on those that are weaker. And you know what Jesus says? Hey, you know what the banner of Christianity is? It's a towel. That if we do have power, we use it to serve. Not to exert on other people. We could go on. We could talk about this. How, how, how Christians should be so different than the world. How, how we're supposed to love those who hurt us. We're supposed to forgive those who offend us. We're supposed to bless those who persecute us. You just go to the Sermon on the Mount and if it's not a good kick to the gut... This is a supernatural way of living, people. This is what Peter is reminding this young church of in the midst of this crazy difficulty. Be holy as he is holy. Here's the last point. We're going to fix our hope. We're going we're to set our hope. We do it by preparing our minds and posturing our heart. This, this third one might be the hardest one we talked about. Listen, don't get mad at me. God, God wrote this, okay? This is, this is God's. Look, jump down to verse 22. Well, this, this middle part is just amazing. Just talks, just exalts Christ. That you, it says in verse, this verse 18 that you are ransomed from the feudal ways that you inherited from your, your, your ancestors. But you are ransomed not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the very blood of Jesus. What an amazing passage. Verse 22, our last point though, is you gotta love each other. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This last command is to love. And we love each other because we're part of this new family. United by this common salvation and this common hope. This is what he would say even in the next verse. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 
because God has literally transformed you, you've got to learn to love each other. But he says it in such a weird way. Did you catch that? He says, since you love each other, then you've got to love each other. Peter, what? He uses two forms of love here. Peter does. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth from a sincere, and we'll get the word there, brotherly love. That brotherly love, that's that word phileo, where we get Philadelphia from, the city of brotherly love. That has really good food, but I've been there, not much love. Um, brotherly love. And we understand brotherly love. We, we love each other in a brotherly or sisterly sense of the word through and affinity with each other. The obedience to the truth, us being weird people, us suffering persecution together. We're not accepted by the world and that makes us accepted by each other. So there's this affinity that's just kind of born in walking with Jesus that makes you brotherly love each other. But brotherly love is like a, I scratch your back and you scratch mine. That's brotherly love. And Peter says, since you brotherly love each other because of the gospel, what I want you to do is to agape each other from a pure heart. Now, agape is a word in scripture that is unconditional love. This is the word that was used of Jesus in John 3. For God so agape the world that he gave his one and only son. See, agape is not a I scratch your back if you scratch mine. Agape is you can be a total turd to me and I'm going to love you. You can reject me and betray me. You can fight against me and lie about me. You can be so unlovable, but I'm still going to love you. You remember, this is the lesson that Jesus taught Peter. You remember that? This exact lesson Jesus taught Peter. You remember Peter made like the greatest failure in the Bible. He boasts to Jesus. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go die. And Peter's like, no way, Lord, I would never let you die. I will die with you on your six. I'm going to pull out the sword. We're going to fight together. I'm going to die for you and with you. And he makes that grand claim. And then Jesus Brings him down a couple of notches and said, Peter, before you hear the rooster crow even three times, this very night you will deny me. Jesus was surely rested after that. Peter and his exuberance took out the sword and chopped off Malchus's ear. Jesus puts it back on and said, no, Peter, this, this is not what it's about. Then three specific times the question was asked of Peter. Peter. That's, that's your Messiah. That's the one you follow, right? The guy that's being tried. No, 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 never, never heard of him. Peter, you, you, you talk just like him. I, that's that's got to be your guy. No, I've never seen him. I saw you eating lunch earlier today. Nope, not me. It says, if you read the account, John, that Jesus actually makes eye contact with Peter on that third denial. Peter was not at the cross. He ran to check with John of the empty grave, and then he went back fishing. Remember that? Peter comes up on the shore after he's resurrected and even seen them a couple times. He goes back fishing after he's seen the resurrected Lord. Jesus is on the shore, and he makes a charcoal fire. The same one he made one of the first times he met Peter. Almost the same exact scene, like Groundhog Day plays out. Jesus yells out, you catching anything? Why don't you throw on the other side? Same exact scene. Peter knows it's the Lord. He comes back and Jesus is restoring him. And says, Peter, your failure doesn't define you. What defines you is your relationship with me. 
And so Peter asked him three times for the three denials. He says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter's like, Lord, you know I phileo you? No, 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 but Peter, do you agape me? Jesus, I followed you this whole time. You know I phileo you. Peter, do you agape me? Peter learned this lesson the hard way. Church, if we knew this one point, we would change Bozier City. That we would love each other with a scandalous, sacrificial kind of love. That we would relate to each other with truth and love. Truth, I'm going to be honest with you no matter what. I actually love you more than I love this friendship. I'm going to be honest with you no matter what. And then love, I'm going to love you no matter what. This is the definition of who we are to be. People of radical love. This would change our city because this is what is so foreign. Nobody sees this kind of love. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, that the world's going to know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. They're not going to come in and be like, man, that was such incredible worship. I want to give my life to the person you're singing to. And that might stir some people's hearts. And we sang incredible songs today. I felt like we should have just sang three or four more of them and then just went home. They, they, they were that good. And I love to worship. But Jesus didn't say it's because of our worship. Because you can perform at worship. And he didn't say that it's because of our preaching. You're going to preach such amazing and compelling and eloquent sermons that the lost world around you, there's, there's going to be no seats in the gym anymore because everybody's just going to want to come hear this. They didn't say that. Or because of our parties. Or because of our ministries. And we do all of those, I believe, really well. They're going to know you're my disciples because of your agape for each other. You know, when you do life in community, you hurt each other. You just do. What was Eldridge's illustration? It was like a den of porcupines. You're going to get stuck. And you've been hurt. If you've done real life in real community, people have offended you. People have let you down. You've let them down. You've offended them. That's the nature of community. But we need community Peter says you need community to be able to really walk this out. You're not going to be able to set your hope fully on the grace of Jesus unless you really learn to love each other. And when you love each other, you're going to hurt each other. So you're going to be hurt in community, but you're also going to be healed in community. As a matter of fact, if you're hurt and you leave community, you never find healing. And so you leave, and I, there's thousands of people. that That's their story. In this, they, they grew up in church. Someone hurt them. Some, some even, they have church hurt. Some even those in authority and leadership, they said the wrong things and did the wrong things, and maybe they lied or they got caught in their own sin, and they're not, they're not perfect, and they hurt you, and then you left, and you never got healing. You didn't go find another Bible-believing church. You just, you, you just did nothing, and so they're out there wounded, literally bleeding out, trying to scab it over, limping through the rest of their life because they never stepped back in the community to get healing. This is what Peter's saying. I know you phileo one another. That's good. Now let the gospel really work in your heart and agape one another. He finishes with this last thing, and I'm done. The band can come up. Everything else that we live for fades. All flesh like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Everything else we live for fades. Every foundation crumbles. But Christ, Peter says. Christ is eternal. His love went further than any of us could have gone. His love will endure longer than anything else. Compared to his love, the most permanent thing on earth is like grass and flowers that disappear. And Peter's question to us this morning, have you found this hope so great and steady 
that it makes trusting God through difficulty and disappointment easy. Will you, will you trust him? Will you fix your hope on him? This picture of communion that we do most weeks at the end of service, this is, this is the picture of us taking the bread, the very body of Jesus, and dipping it into the juice, the very representing, representing the blood of Jesus, symbolic of the blood of Jesus. We take it and we remember Christ's death. We remember his agape love. And that empowers us to leave and love the same way. Would you pray with me? Friends, if you're here today, I, I, I just beg you to get alone with God for a minute, right in your seats. And you don't have to get up quickly to come to communion. We'll leave these stations open till the end of the service, even after. The important thing this morning is that you talk to your Father in heaven. Maybe you've just been coasting through life, and today's the day that you gotta, you got to prepare your minds for action. you got to gird up the loins of your mind there. you got to remind yourself what you're after. Maybe for you, it's the posture. You don't have the posture of obedient children. You have the posture of a rebellious child who doesn't want to follow the Lord, who's always arguing with him about what he asked him to do. Maybe the third one's the thing for you that's been tripping you up. Really love each other. Someone in this very body has offended you and you haven't talked to them since. And Jesus would say, I didn't give my life for you to, to live like that with your brother and sister. I need you to agape them. The quills and all. I need you to agape them. And if the gospel is really working in you, that's, that's how we know we become more loving. That's how we know we become more loving. God, I pray for us today. I pray that you would do just the, what only you can do. Lord, the best worship and the best. Lord, it's not going to change people's hearts. Lord, only you can change our hearts. I beg you and plead you to change our hearts. To make us more loving. More trusting. God, do what only you can do in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's some guys and gals in the back that would love to pray with you. Maybe one of these steps is just hard for you. That's fine to admit. It's great to admit, actually. Maybe you just want to go ask them to pray with you that you'd be more loving. Maybe you've been hurt. You're having a hard time forgiving. Just you need to tell them that. You don't have to tell them anything. You can just walk up to someone and say, would you pray for me? Some of you know you've offended someone and you need to go seek reconciliation this morning. My prayer is that you would just have the courage to do just that. Whatever God puts in your heart, do what he's led you to do. Our communion stations are open. You come when you're ready. I'll be in the back as well if someone likes to pray with you.